So 2 Kings and uh, chapter 4. Last Sunday, we began to look together at the story of Elisha. And uh, we are going to pursue this story on a Sunday. Uh, Maybe on a Sunday night, perhaps uh, on a Sunday morning, who knows. And we're going to do so to see what lessons we can learn from these three miracles that the, the writer puts together. So the first is Elisha and the widow. The second is Elisha and the Shunammite woman, which is also in chapter 4. And then the final lesson is in chapter 5, and it's the story of Naaman. Now, when you read your Old Testament, you need to be very uh, much on the lookout for how the author tells the story. So what you get is you get short, snappy little stories of miracles, such as the axe's head that floats and Elisha feeding the 100 men. And then you have accounts that are much more detailed. You have accounts of characters that are filled out for us. And it's those accounts that the writers want us to focus on. So we get told a great deal about the widow. We have even more detail of the Shunammite woman and a great deal of information about Naaman. So what happens when you read these uh, chapters is that some characters uh, and some events are very brief, very one-dimensional, and then there are others that stand out in full colour. And they are the ones to spend your time with. So we're going to look at Elisha and the widow. And what I want to see here are three things, always three things. First of all, we have a great deal of information told us about the widow's situation. So the the author fills in the details. Then we see here this woman coming to Elisha with a request. Now, it's very unusual. I'm sure you know that in the days of Elijah, Elisha, Moses, and Joshua, it's very unusual to have a prophet encountering women. So it's very unusual here what we find, this woman coming to Elisha with her request. And then we have the salvation that is offered to her by Elisha. And I want us to see tonight that there are two stages to the salvation that is offered to this woman. She has to do one thing before God does another. That's what we'll see this evening. And then at the end, we'll round it all up by learning some lessons for ourselves. So let's turn to God then and let's ask for his help as we listen to his word. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness and mercy and grace to us. Lord, we thank you for our meeting this morning and for the way you spoke to us uh, from your word. We thank you again that we are here. Lord, we pray for those not with us today and we commend them to you. Lord, we do ask for your blessing upon us as we take up the story of Elisha. So, Lord, we ask you, you to speak to us, open our minds and our hearts to your word in these days. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So we met Elisha last Sunday. Many of you I know will have read Elisha over the years. 
And uh, we saw two key things in the story of Elisha. Elisha asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And we saw last week what that means. Elisha wants to do double what his master Elijah achieved. And the reason why we read about Elijah and his encounter with the widow is that you see here the story of doubling. Elijah and the widow, that widow has one son. Here in 2 Kings 4, it's a woman with two sons. So what you'll see in Elisha is he doubles the effects of the ministry of Elijah. Elijah does eight miracles during the course of his ministry. I'm sure you remember from last Sunday that Elisha does 16. And so whatever Elijah does, Elisha can match it, but he can also double it. And that's what we see here in these verses. So last week then I gave you a question. I asked you to think about this widow and I want you to make a guess as to her identity. Who is she? Let's have a look at verse 1. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets. She cried out to Elisha saying, Your servant my husband is dead and you know that your servant feared the Lord. Now what's key there in that verse is the fact that Elisha knew her husband. He did not just know about him, or he didn't just know that he was a son of the prophets. He knew this man personally. The word know there in the, in the verse is the word for personal knowledge. So you knew my husband. You knew that he feared the Lord. So who is she then? I wonder how many of you have thought about this since last Sunday. We can't be certain, but there's a very strong Jewish tradition about this uh, woman's identity. So I'm sure many of you know uh, that there's a, a great uh, body of traditional knowledge that uh, flows from the Old Testament. And it's been handed down through the generations and it's consulted by Jewish scholars uh, as they read their Old Testaments. Now, according to that tradition, this woman is the wife of someone we met in the ministry of Elijah. So who is she? Well, just find out a bit more about her then. You can read in verse 1, Your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So what you can find out is that this woman, her husband, got into great debt during his time as a son of the prophets. So it's very interesting, isn't it, that here's a son of the prophets, someone who fears the Lord, but he gets into significant debt. Now, it's very interesting that God's people can get into debt. This woman is in so much debt that the person who loaned the money to her husband has made threats. 
And the threats are that unless she pays up very soon, he will take her two sons into his service. Now, we're not going to go into Deuteronomy and and so on, but there's a lot of um, rules in Deuteronomy about getting into debt and uh, what can be done and and what the creditor can do. And uh, it is permissible for someone who's owed money to take assets from the people he's loaned the money to. So think about this for a moment then. Why would a son of the prophet get into such debt that even his own sons are threatened. It would have to be, you'd hope, a very serious reason why a believer in Yahweh, someone who fears the Lord, would get into such crippling debt with such severe consequences. So the idea is, that the, the son of the prophet got into debt, not the widow. She's not in debt because he's died and she's had to try and, and survive on her own. Her debt is her husband's debt. He's the one who brought debt to the family and brought this terrible situation about. So who is she then? Well, all I can tell you is what the commentators say. And the tradition tells us. And tradition very clearly identifies this woman as the wife of Obadiah. Do you remember Obadiah in the story of Elijah? Obadiah, the one who is the prime minister uh, with King Ahab. The one who's the right-hand man. The one who organizes the famine relief. And uh, most significantly... Obadiah, do you remember, he's the one who sheltered the prophets in their caves. Fifty in one cave and fifty in another. And again, according to tradition, the idea is that Obadiah gets into debt as he tries to sustain the lives of these sons of the prophets. Do you remember what he said to Elijah? I feed them, I give them water and bread, and I keep them safe. Now, the idea is, in doing that, Obadiah amounts a significant debt and then dies. And his wife is left with the consequences. Well, that's what tradition tells us. It's a tradition that goes right back through the centuries So it's very interesting that this may well be what this woman's experience is. Her husband, in serving the Lord, acquired a great debt. And she's left with the consequences. She's left with two sons, no income, no support, no hope, no one to turn to, and just a trickle of oil left in her home. So do you see your situation? Now the next thing I want you to notice is this woman turns to Elisha for help. So verse 1 again, she cries out to Elisha saying, your servant, my husband, is dead. Now the idea there is he's just died. It's not been long at all. And she's in the midst of this famine 
and she's in a very difficult situation. She turns to Elisha for help. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. What's the tradition in the Old Testament? If a person is in a desperate situation, who are they meant to turn to for help? Now, let me help you remember. Think about those two, and let's not, let's not you know, spare our words. Think of those two prostitutes. They both have a son. They share the same bed. And then one smothers a son, and the son is dead. Do you remember? Who do they turn to? What you're going to see in, in the story of Elisha is as the famine deepens, the society reaches the point where cannibalism breaks out. And there's a story later on in Elisha about two mothers with two sons, and one mother eats the son of another and says, let's eat your son first, and then we'll eat mine. And when it comes to eating her son, she then refuses. Now, the first mother, who does she turn to for help and support? Now, if I'm jogging your memories right, you'll all know that what should happen is this. If a person is in a terrible situation and they need help, the person they turn to is the king. That's how it's meant to work. So look down in chapter 4, and uh, with the story of the Shunammite woman, we get this hinted at, don't we? So take a look at verse 13. So Elisha says to the Shunammite woman, Say now to her, look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army. So what's meant to happen? If you're in a desperate situation, you turn to the king. Now what's really interesting is this widow doesn't turn to the king. She goes straight to Elisha. And she asks Elisha for help. Now that's hugely significant in this story that it's the man of God who is center stage. It's the man of God who brings deliverance to a widow. And the king is nowhere to be seen. There is no appeal made to the king to help at this time. She turns to Elisha. And she cries out to him. And she reminds him of her husband of her husband's past service, of her husband's faithfulness, and is based on that that she makes her request known to Elisha. So let's look thirdly then at how Elisha responds. Verse 2. So Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? Now this is very familiar. It's what Elijah did. It's what his master did. It's what Elisha knew his master did. You look to what you have left. That's the key here. 
And all she has is just a tiny amount of oil in a jar. That's all she has left. So Elisha gives her these instructions. Go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbours, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you've come in, now look at all this detail. When you come back to your house, so the first thing she has to do is go to her neighbours. She has to ask them for empty jars, empty vessels. Now again, you see, we, we rush over these stories, don't we? Imagine doing that, going and knocking a door and asking a neighbour, have you got anything that I can use, any empty cup? or jug, or bowl. She has to do that first. And then look at the detail. As she comes back, she has to lock the door behind her. Now, there's some discussion about does she keep her sons out or in, but she locks the door, and as she locks the door, she takes the one jar which is hers, with this tiny amount of oil in, and she starts pouring. And as she pours, out comes this fresh supply of oil. And it first fills one cup, and another cup, then another jar. And the idea is it flows so quickly that she has to go from jar to jar to jar as she tries to catch the oil that is coming from her own vessel. So there she is, she's rushing from vessel to vessel, it's all happening so quickly. She then turns to her son and she says, get me another. And as she says, get me another, there's no, no other to be found. And straight away, the oil stops. Now so far, this woman's situation is no better. There's no relief just yet. There's no salvation just yet. So what she does is she goes back to Elisha, verse 6. And then she came, verse 7, and tells the man of God. And he says, and here at last is the moment of salvation. Go, sell the oil and pay your debt. And you and your sons live on the rest. Now, I want you to see that this salvation is a double salvation. Just like Elisha asked for a double portion of the Spirit, this solution is a double solution. First of all, by selling the oil, she pays off her creditor. And that means that in her little town, wherever she is, people have been able to buy oil. Now, do you remember? There's a famine. And the famine is so severe that people's lives are being threatened. So this woman, by selling her oil, is able to support her neighbours, the very people she borrowed vessels from, are now given oil, which is so basic to their survival. 
the man who loaned the money, his debt now has been repaid. And then you get the second aspect of the salvation. You and your sons live on the rest. So her salvation comes. She now has money. And the money that she has as a result of this miracle is enough to support her and her sons. So that's the story. What do we learn from it for ourselves? And uh, there are many Christians today turning to these stories in order to learn lessons for today. And uh, I know of many who are looking at the story of Elisha in order to learn lessons for the congregation. So the lessons I want us to learn are for us as a congregation. And there are many of them just in the story of this widow. So I've been thinking, should I just rapidly tell you what I think the lessons are? Because there's many of them. Or should we take it more slowly and uh, look at the lessons one by one? I'm not quite sure yet what to do. Let's see how we go this evening. First lesson, then, is found in verse 1. And I think this first lesson, which is the hardest, possibly, of all the lessons that we can learn. We have a God who will let things go until they reach the most desperate point. She has a little oil left. She's a faithful woman. Her husband was a faithful man. They feared the Lord. They served the Lord. And yet the Lord allows their situation to reach a crisis moment. And I think today as a congregation, we need to acknowledge that this is so often how God works. He allows his people to continue until they reach a crisis. So think of Elijah. And he had the same experience. He was told to hide. And uh, he ran and he hid at that little crook, uh, uh, the, the little stream. And uh, he was there for three years. And he saw the, the uh, river dry up. And uh, you can imagine Elijah sitting there saying, how much worse is it going to get? How much longer will it be like this? When? will my deliverance come? So Elijah knew what it was like. And then, of course, going back to the story of the widow, it was just the same for her. She had one son. She had a little flour left, a little oil left. She was gathering sticks. She anticipated that it was all over, that it was finished, done, no future. Close the door. Give up face the end and what you'll see again and again not just with Elijah and Elisha 
But in the way that God deals with his people, he allows us to reach rock bottom. But when is that moment? So let's think back before the summer. As a congregation, we had a tough time. There was lots of stress. Many of us were stressed. Do you remember before the summer, we took that theme from stress to hope. And uh, we talked about it in prayer meeting, how for months now, many of our members are under stress, physical illnesses, falls, family pressures. And we talked about the stress we knew as a congregation and how it was affecting us. So that attendance was down. People uh, weren't coming. And we weren't able to do the things that we'd planned to do. Now, here we are, after the summer. We're back together, looking to the weeks ahead. And what do we find? Still stress. Still people in situations that are very difficult. Still nothing's changed. Things seem to get worse. Problems continue. Challenges remain. Numbers continue to be low. Lesson number one from the life of Elisha. God will allow things to get so low that we have very little left. How much have we got left as a congregation? Do you feel we've got much left? Have we got much left of this work and that work? Have we got much left in terms of those who come here and those who attend there? Is there much left in terms of our financial situation? Lesson number one, I'm underlining it, I'll say it again. We are dealing with God and how God works and how God works with his people. And what God does, I'll say it to you again, he will allow things to decline to the point where we have very little left. And that's what you see in the story of this widow. I'm sure you've all got in your cupboards at home a bottle of ketchup that you've been using, or perhaps you've got a pot of jam or a jar of mustard and and you know, don't you, you've been using it and using it and using it. And then you go into the cupboard one day and you take the jam out and you stick your knife in and you've just got some scrapings left at the bottom. That's this widow's situation. She has just a little left. Just enough to scrape a knife around and get out perhaps a little bit. That's how God works. And when God works like that, his people are to cry out to him. Can I show you a New Testament example of this truth? So turn to 2 Corinthians and uh, the first chapter. 2 Corinthians and the first chapter. Now, I've always thought these are wonderful verses. But I've always found them difficult to preach on. I've always regarded them as encouraging verses. But whenever I've tried to preach on them, uh, the sermon always seems to fall flat. Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 1, 
beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds in and through Christ. Now keep going, and let's look at verse 8. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of the trouble that came to us when we were in Asia. We were burdened there beyond measure. We were burdened above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised the dead. Now, that's exactly the same idea in the New Testament. We have a God who raises the dead. But first, the dead have to be dead if God is to raise the dead. So Elijah's widow is at the very point of death, and God raises her situation. Elisha's widow, her and her two sons, they're at the point of death. And God raises the dead. Do you remember last Sunday? The story of Elisha ends with Elisha buried and a man thrown into his grave, a dead man, a funeral abandoned, and they dump the body in Elisha's grave because there's a band of terrorists on the way. And that man is raised from the dead. We have a God who raises the dead. And of course, what Paul says here in uh, this chapter is that he himself was at the point of death. The trouble he had in Asia was so desperate that on many occasions he thought his last moments had arrived. And of course, in verse 9, he actually refers to a time when a sentence of death was passed by the authorities on him. And at the point of death, God raised Paul from the dead. This is what we see, don't we, in the life of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. He died upon a cross. We know that he died for our sins. He was made sin for us. The Lamb of God was sacrificed on our behalf. And the disciples thought that that was the end. Dead. Not just the 11 disciples, but the the female disciples, they also. It seemed like that was it. No more. All gone. The end. And then God raised his son from the dead. So let's end with this. At the moment... As a congregation, we are on that downward path. We need to reach the moment when we have very little left. 
there's just the scrag ends left in a jar. And at that moment, God will invite us to cry out to him as the God who raises the dead. Do you believe that our God can raise us from the dead? He can raise our congregation. He can reach out in love and mercy and power and grace to those for whom you were praying, those in your family that you love, your neighbours that you talk to. Do you believe that we have a God who shows you through his Son that he is the God of the resurrection? He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Do you remember that great formula? I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus uses that to say, doesn't he? God is not the God of the dead. He's not the God of no hope. He's not the God of lost causes. He's not the God who gives up, who walks by, who's not interested. He is the God who reaches out to his people in their most desperate moments when there's little left, and he raises the dead. Now, here's our challenge in weeks to come. Our challenge is to see the oil run even littler. The oil run out even more. As we see the oil running out, is your faith going to be sustained? Are you going to cry out and criticise and judge and fear the oil will run lower until we come to the point when we cry out to God and then there is the great challenge. Do we believe in a God who can raise the dead?